Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Snowball Earth, Fluoride, and Nanochips. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Stephen Kleinedler, who will talk about science words every college graduate should know. Also, we'll find out what birefringence is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Lynn. And once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good. I just got my teeth clean. Everything's A-OK. Wow. You know, you've, you've ruined all that uh, beautiful fauna that uh, has been growing there. <laughs> it could have started a little zoo in that mouth of yours. So speaking of teeth, do you take your calcium? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm reaching post-menopause stage, so I think <laughs> calcium is essential for my bones. How about fluoride? I think because the water spike with the fluoride, I have to, right? Ah, for your essence, right? <laughs> yes, purity of essence. So it turns out now that too much fluoride may be bad for you. Yes. Damn the government. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a conspiracy, huh? Well, I think the wiretaps now are actually composed of fluoride. Mm. So uh, a recent paper that came out by National Research Council in late March showed that about 10% of the people who are exposed to the maximum EPA concentration, that's 4 milligrams per liter, about 10% of these people develop severe dental fluorosis is a, a condition in which you have discoloration and pitting of the teeth. And if you can imagine, it's probably not good for your bones either. I imagine fairly damaging to the structural integrity. Yes. So one of the recommendations from the study is that we probably should cut down the maximum level to, say, two parts per million. Or actually, maybe even lower. In fact, in 1997, the Institute of Medicine said that the upper limit should be about 0.7 milligrams per liter. And okay. in fact, if you go to 25 of the 28th largest cities in the U.S., this seems to be a problem where babies are exposed to an inordinately high amount of fluoride. I see. Actually, even if you go down to 2 milligrams per liter, you'll probably be able to escape the pitting, but you'll still get uh, quite a bit of discoloration among the people. Oh, okay. What's the alternative then? Drink bottled water? Probably. I mean, if you're mixing a baby formula, just right. get stuff that's from the uh, you know mountain springs. People want to know more? You can look up the National Research Council's report on March the 22nd. All right, Frank, do you remember the past? seems to escape me. It's much like the future, I guess. <laughs> kind of uncertain. Well, the thing that helps actually remember in the past is reunions. And reunions? reunions are a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. So I uh, was just down for my Caltech 10-year reunion. Oh, okay. I guess that means mine is coming up next year. <laughs> I guess, yeah. So be forewarned. You can be expected to see Frank at the Caltech 10-year reunion. Uh, so what's new? Uh, did people move on with their lives and get married and become normal? <laughs> <laughs> Well, kind of hard to say because, you know, it is a self-selected group that attends reunions, so it might be not the adequate sampling that you would like. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but as part of the Caltech Tenure Reunion, they also do what's called Seminar Day. Seminar Day. Yes, Seminar Day. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to do that. I had a surf project, but it wasn't uh, worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand. They always have these undergraduate research projects, and you have a speaking competition, right? Right. And the winner gets to speak at Seminar Day. Right. Like, that's a prize. And then they put them up against, you know, Nobel Prize winners and such. Who's going to go to their talk? I 
I don't know. Mm. I didn't. But the talks that I did go to were quite interesting, actually. Really? We've had on the program before uh, Joe Kirschfink from Caltech, uh-huh. and he has the snowball earth hypothesis. Right. And there's another member of the faculty there, Alex Sessions, who was giving a talk. Okay. Doing snowball earth and the diversity of life. So is he correlating some of these ice age periods with growth in the microbes? Yeah, that's pretty much the idea, right? So if you take core samples from the earth, for example, you see changes in the global composition of gases in the atmosphere, what happened with the diversity of life. Mm-hmm. And so apparently there's always these periods of punctuated evolution surrounding these snowball earth periods. Oh, okay. And the question is whether or not the snowball earth is actually causing this or is maybe a symptom of the change in the diversity of life. Huh. So actually one of the related questions was regarding the snowball earth hypothesis, whether or not these ice sheets actually go all the way down to the equator and have the same thickness at the equator as they do elsewhere in, say, the northern latitudes. Right. And one of the things that he was showing based on his core samples and looking at what he calls chemical fossils was, in fact, that you have a lot of photosynthesis occurring near the equators around the times of snowball earth periods. Okay. Suggesting that, in fact, the ice sheets can't be that thick, right? Uh-huh. For sunlight has to get through in order for photosynthesis to be occurring. So right. Suggesting that some of the models which have snowball earths with thick sheets of ice near the equator are completely wrong. Okay. I guess this puts a new spin on snowball earth theory, huh? <laughs> I, I guess you don't want to be hit by that snowball too often. <laughs> Luckily, go- global warming is keeping us from that period at the moment. <laughs> yes. So this was very fascinating work, and actually you could probably find out more information by checking out Alex Sessions' website at Caltech. So speaking of microbes, it seems oxygen is overrated. As far as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think that was the one that could be eliminated (laughs) at the bottom, yeah. So it turns out for a lot of anaerobic organisms, bacteria, oxygen is quite dangerous to them and will kill them. Oh, yeah. And in fact, 2.2 billion years ago, oxygen was more or less a waste gas that emanated from bacteria-like organisms that could do photosynthesis. Right. And actually, oxygen is killing us slowly, right, by oxidating our bodies, right? Yeah. Oxygen, the hidden killer. You heard it here first on Berkeley Grotts. <laughs> Some people call it life. We call it pollution. <laughs> Isn't that the motto for the CO2? Uh... Yeah. So CO2, uh, their tagline is CO2. Some politicians call it pollution. We call it life. So anyways, when oxygen arrived, either these microbes adapted or they just died away. And what they did was they did bioinformatics of about 70 of today's anaerobic and aerobic organisms research led by Jason Raymond at Livermore showed how oxygen available changed the architecture of their metabolism. And so as a result, they've been able to identify over a thousand metabolic pathways that are not seen in the anaerobic organisms, but are widely observed with aerobic ones. Mm. So this shows what the dramatic innovation that was needed to facilitate the use uptake of oxygen. Okay, so oxygen, good or bad? Some people call it life. I call it gas. <laughs> right, and this was in recent edition of Science, Volume 311. All right, and finally, more news from Caltech Seminar Day. Cool. Brilliant, actually, that I went to that thing. I have my stories for the week. The Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> and this is, I guess, for everybody who wasn't at Caltech Seminar Day, which I don't think anyone from Caltech actually listens to this part of the show, <laughs> which is maybe a good thing. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> they've actually started an institute down at Caltech, uh, the Kavli Nanoscience Institute. 
they're trying to create like lab on a chip type devices. Okay. What they're trying to do is they're trying to probe the biochemistry of single cells. Uh huh. The rationale behind this being that if you look at population behavior of numerous cells, you might be catching the biochemistry at different stages, right? Right. And as a result, you're getting a smeared average of what's actually going on uh-huh. when you really want to figure out specific pathways per se. Right. But in order to do this, you need to have these little nanochip devices where it can pump microfluids and. Right. You know. But the main problem, it turns out, is just that getting these little nano devices is impossible because there's no foundry for it, right? Uh huh. And so what they've done is they've actually created their own little foundry at Caltech to create a bunch of these nanochip devices that they could use to start creating little devices. Okay. It's sort of still in its infancy stages. It'll be quite exciting to see actually what comes out of that institute because now they have sort of a way of mass producing a lot of different types of lab on a chip devices. Wow, cool. So one day we'll have a breathalyzer that'll just see what's wrong with us, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out dogs apparently have the ability to sniff out cancer in people. So people with certain types of cancer will emit some hydrocarbon that parts per trillion that we cannot sense. But somehow if we had the proper sensors do that, it would be very easy. Right, right. I think we talked about that on the show a while back. And yeah, yeah we got to train doctors to know how to do that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> to sniff you out, huh? Yeah, I don't know what they're teaching them in medical school nowadays, but, you know, got to use all five senses. Of course. Taste. What about touch? Palpations. <laughs> anyway, if anyone's interested in this, you can check out the Kavli Nanoscience Institute at Caltech. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. Stephen Kleinedler will join us to discuss 100 science words that every college graduate should know. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, the world is becoming a technologically more complicated place, spurred onward by the ongoing discoveries in basic science. The rapid advances in fields such as genetics, environmental science, and nanotechnology all have the potential to affect us. Keeping up with these advances requires a knowledge of the key words and concepts in each field of science. Well, joining us today on the Grok Science Show is Mr. Stephen Kleinedler. Mr. Kleinedler is one of the editors of the American Heritage Dictionary's release of 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know, and he joins us today to discuss some of these uh, key words in science. Uh, Mr. Kleinedler, thank you very much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's certainly our pleasure to have you on the program, especially with this very fascinating book, 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know. This is actually part of a series that the American Heritage Dictionary puts out. Is that correct? That's correct. We have a 100-word series which started several years ago with 100 words every high school graduate should know, which we put out in conjunction uh, with the uh, new edition of the American Heritage College Dictionary. And it proved such a popular title that we expanded the title to discuss word usage, 
language, uh, words that word lovers would know. And now this book, which ties in with our science dictionary line, the American Heritage Dictionary puts out three science dictionaries, one for adults, one for students, one for children, and this book ties in with that. And is this one specifically to college graduates, or can anyone get something? Anyone can access it. Certainly a child who's interested in science, high schooler who plans to pursue science or just wants to establish a thorough grounding in science, perhaps they're preparing for if they live in a state that has standardized testing in science, it certainly would uh, give them a leg up on that. All of these terms are items that someone who follows the news will probably be familiar with in some form, even though they might not know exactly that this phenomenon happen to be called that, but it's stuff that should be familiar to people who are aware of what's going on in the news. I see. And is, is that how the words were actually chosen, was based on its uh, relevance in the news, or just maybe its relevance in science per, per se? Uh, a little bit of both. The book was compiled by the staff members here at the American Heritage Dictionary, and uh, our staff has a wide background. One of our staff members is a uh, medical doctor. Another has a degree in psychology, another in uh, physics. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to take a bunch of words from different areas and as a group decide among which areas, which words we wanted. And then what makes this book interesting is it's not just a recitation of 100 words followed by 100 definitions. Mm -hmm. Rather, each entry is accompanied by a fairly lengthy essay that describes in terms that the everyday user can understand what this word means, why it's important, how it's used. It must have been kind of hard trying to just narrow it down to 100 words in science, since there are certainly more than that many concepts in science. That's true. Um, we could have easily done yeah. several hundred words or a thousand words, but we came up with this list of 100 words partially based on um, wanting a well-rounded approach to the different sciences. For example, we didn't want 99 physics words right. in one chemistry term, so we tried to cover a lot of areas, mathematics, geology, biochemistry, physics, astronomy, for example. And since it uh, represents a dictionary, we also tried to get at least one word from each letter of the alphabet. <laughs> so we wanted something from A to Z, so there, you know, we couldn't pick 25 words beginning with M, for example, right. which is very easy to do. <laughs> uh, well, it certainly is broad in its scope, and maybe I guess we can go through some of these words and first get a definition and figure out why is it actually uh, important for us to know about. That would be great. Do you want me to choose words, or do you have certain words in mind you'd like to approach? Well, why don't we start? Uh, so what, what is one of your favorite words out of the book, actually? Well, um, I have actually several favorite give you an example. Uh, I'll start with mathematics. Okay. There's a very basic word, and it's the last word, zero, mm. which is important for a lot of reasons. I mean, zero means exactly what you think it is, but why it's important is sort of a philosophical question, how nothing can mean something. We have a little a bit on that, and it's worth noting that there are entire books devoted to the subject of zero. Um, there was a recent bestseller called The Story of Zero, which is a phenomenal book, and I encourage anyone to read it. Another fun math term I like is the Fibonacci sequence which I'm sure most people at Berkeley are quite familiar with, but not only because of its mathematical sequence, but its relevance to um, the golden ratio, the golden mean, mm-hmm. and artwork, and how this proportion is seen throughout nature and throughout art. It's just a fascinating term. Right, the, the sequence sort of repeats itself in all manners of structures, like throughout nature, right? Right. The sequence starts with zero, and then you go to one, and the next one's one because zero plus one is mm-hmm. one, and the next one is two because one plus one is two, the next one's three because one plus two is three, then two and three is five, so five's the next mm-hmm. number, three and five are eight, then 13, 21, 34, 55, and so on. Mm-hmm. 
So there's also a lot of terms I've noticed in biology. Right. And not only biology, but also medicine and biochemistry. But some of the uh, biology terms we have are um, alga and cyanobacteria, endorphin, uh, hypha, the word sex itself, (laughs) and yolk. And in medicine, we have things like anaphylaxis and angiogenesis and interferon, which are certainly items that people are familiar with from the news. Or, and then there's uh, some more obscure words like quashiorcor, which is extreme malnutrition, and it comes from the Ga language of Ghana. Hmm. So how did, how did that one actually get onto the list? Well, um, partially because K isn't that large of a letter, so these words jump out at you when you're looking at K. <laughs> okay. Also, um, because it's an interesting word, it's not a word that comes from Latin or Greek or even hmm. Sanskrit or Arabic. It's a word that comes from this Niger-Congo language spoken in Ghana. So it's unusual because it's a science word that doesn't come from a language source that science words normally come from. Right, right. Respect. So I imagine a lot of people would jump to looking up sex as the first definition they looked to in this book. Why was that actually included? Sex, well, interesting just because it's such a basic facet of biology, mm-hmm. and it allowed us to talk about chromosomal structure, the X chromosomes, the Y chromosomes, the fact that birds have sex chromosomes that are called W and Z, which is different from what you find in humans and other mammals. We also get to talk about parthenogenesis in the uh, process of this essay. Hopefully a lot of uh, nice diagrams, I would hope. <laughs> um, we do have diagrams, not at sex, but we do have a nice diagram at fission and the Fibonacci uh, sequence and at orbital in discussing the quantum state of electrons that orbit a nucleus of an atom. So we do include illustrations where it helps understand the definition. A nice charted imaginary zero showing how the 90 degrees rotation of multiplying mm-hmm. a number by I, when you multiply something by I four times, you end up back at that number. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there weren't many in K, but uh, one that jumped out from the K category was the KT boundary. Right. Um, that would the transition period between the Cretaceous and the Tertiary periods, which corresponds to a uh, mass extinction that happened at that time, which is probably related to the uh, crashing of a huge meteor into the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, so another one that uh, jumps out as probably being very fundamental in, in all sense of the words is actually fundamental force. Fundamental force. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are four fundamental forces. They are the forces that act between bodies of matter. Got gravity, which most people are familiar with, the electromagnetic force, and then the strong force and the weak force, which I could go into, but one probably needs a physics degree to understand that. But that said, we do, I think, a really brilliant job of explaining this into language that a non-physics major would understand. Right, and this is certainly one of the uh, frontiers of uh, physics is uh, unified. The other one that jumps out is heard a lot in the news is junk DNA. Yes, interesting to point out, much like junk mail, there Mm -hmm. exists junk DNA, and it's estimated that up to 95% of human DNA really serves no biological purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, isn't the saying that uh, one man's junk is another man's treasure? That's true. Another one that is probably again in the news, uh, nanotube. Right. Um, there are obviously a whole load of words that we could have picked with the nano prefix right. because uh, nanotechnology nowadays is so ubiquitous. But the nanotube itself is interesting. It's you know a hollow molecule in the shape of a cylinder, uh, usually made of uh, carbon. It's the uh, foundation of the fullerene. It's used to make fiber that is e- exceedingly strong, stronger than Kevlar. And um, so much has been done with it, and I think so much will be done with it as time goes on. Mm. So much of computer science 
science will be based around this, already is to some extent, and the field of nanotechnology is largely dependent on um, being able to manipulate these nanotubes. Right, right. Interest to all the people interested in environmental sciences, carbon sequestration. Yes, perhaps a more esoteric term Mm. until you realize what it's about, Mm -hmm. which is that it's the uh, removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and it's uh, considered as a mechanism that can help reduce global warming. So it's something that people who are trying to combat global warming would be very familiar with. Right, right. But how about just finally, uh, sociobiology? Sociobiology. Yeah, this actually, of course, is not just a science term, but it's a name of an entire sub-area of science. And it's the study of the biological basis of animal social behavior. The essay there talks about um, what a, a sociobiologist does. That's kind of a field that has a little bit of controversy all the time, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of these scientific terms are very controversial, and that's another reason we think the book would be helpful, is a lot of time there's scientific debate, and parties on either side might not be entirely familiar with what they're debating about. (laughs) So this provides some background, you know, for things like the Big Bang and that kind of thing. Right, right. Well, so, I mean, the book is titled 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know. How many of these words do you think college graduates actually know? I would venture to guess that many of them would at least ring a bell, uh, Mm -hmm. not the least of which is Pavlovian. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, many of them would would be, I I would say at least three-quarters of them people would be familiar with, might not be able to say what it is, but it's something that's there in the back of their head they're at least familiar with, and this will give them, like, there'll be a lot of aha moments when people read this book. Right, right. You know, again, as we mentioned earlier, that there are certainly more than 100 science words that probably college graduates should know. Is there any plans for a sequel to this book? Again, it's one in a series. We're certainly open to coming up with 100 more words in any one of these categories. So it is definitely a possibility down the future. All right. Well, I certainly hope uh, anyone interested in science or uh, any college graduates goes out and uh, takes a look at this book and broadens their field of knowledge then. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, Mr. Kleinler, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about the book, 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know. Well, thank you very much. And you were just listening to Mr. Stephen Kleinedler discussing 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 our summer film preview, and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. We're back and ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Words Every College Graduate Should Know. 
So for the following five words, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, should a college graduate know them or not really that important? Uh, Mr. Kleiner, are you ready to play your game, the Grokatron 5000? I certainly am. Okay, here we go. Grokatron 5000, words a college graduate should know. Uh, number one, Royal Flush. Royal Flush. Uh, well, considering how many students probably make their way through college supporting themselves with poker, I would imagine Royal Flush would be an important term for a uh, college student to know. Yes. Yeah, I guess it beats the financial aid. <laughs> exactly. All right. Number two, Tomcat, and by that we mean celebrity entity, not the animal. Oh, God. <laughs> they probably do know it. Whether they should know it, I would say no. I, the, the, the sooner we... Uh, Linguists can make field day out of words like Brangelina and Tomcat, but boy, I'm over the Tomcat thing, so I want to put that one in the no category. All right, hopefully it doesn't make it into the uh, permanent lexicon there. Gosh, one hopes not. Okay, number three, outsourcing. Outsourcing. I would say a college graduate should know about it only because it you know, affects their ability to get a job. Right. Um, it's certainly something that anyone in the workforce is aware of, and as such, it's probably an important word to know. So I'd give this one a yes. Right. Okay. Uh, number four, the Nigerian scam. Oh, <laughs> again, something that we probably don't want to know, but it, again, it's good to be uh, made aware of. It still surprises me that people do respond to these emails and send them, you know, their life savings or their account numbers or whatnot. So, yes, I would say it's something that a uh, college graduate should know right. about. Be aware of and uh, don't send your money, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, should they know about a 401k? Um. Yes, I believe only because uh, the the law of compound interest. The sooner you start saving, the more you'll have later on. They they may not be sexy or attractive, but by gosh, they they do really add up over the course of time. So I would encourage any college graduate when they start to uh, just dump a percentage in their four hundred one k because before long they'll uh, be surprised how much it added up to. All right, the miracle of compound interest. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, well, Mr. Kleiner, I do want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around to play our game, the Rocketron Five Thousand. Uh, and, of course, talking about the book, uh, 100 Science Words Every College Graduate Should Know. Okay. Well, thank you again for having me on, and oh. uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. All right. Well, it's our pleasure. Thank Great, you thanks. very much. Bye. So I guess Memorial Day is coming up, and I guess that means some blockbusters are coming out this year, huh? That is correct. It is the blockbuster season, and already we've had one, I guess, with MI3, right? Impossible or not. <laughs> <laughs> It would be nice if some of these things had a plot. That would be nice as well, or a plot you could follow. <laughs> yeah, it seems these days a plot is not requisite for a movie anymore. No, no. Although I have friends a lot like summer action-adventure films, right? <laughs> you hang out with them, it's fun for a while, but, you know, you'd like some character development. That'd <laughs> be a plot. Uh-huh. So uh, it turns out uh, this year's uh, horror movie is mm-hmm. coming out, Okay. An Inconvenient Truth. And where, where did you catch this uh, film? I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen the talk, which is based on it's uh, Al Gore's talk on global warming. Okay. Very compelling, actually. All right. Well, well basically, uh, we're at the stage of a planetary emergency and mm-hmm. that we have to take drastic action right now. Ah. There's no time uh, having more studies because of uncertainties that the administration keeps asserting. <laughs> so we're on planet alert orange? I guess so. So basically, global warming is a greater threat than terrorism. Wasn't that the argument of Steven Schneider on yes. the program a while back? Yeah. Yeah. But the movie, and also his talk, ends on an optimistic note mm-hmm. that, you know, we do have the technology, we have the solutions, we just need to get the policies and the people, the willpower to mm-hmm. take action right now. Yeah, well, that's easier said than done, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can barely get four people to agree on what movie to rent at Blockbuster, right? <laughs> I've had that problem. But hopefully they'll agree to rent this one. <laughs> yes. Anything you've seen lately that's piqued your interest? I haven't, but, you know, I haven't been the one that's been going to the San Francisco Film Festival, which was recently. Oh, yes, that was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, was there anything good out of that? 
caught a couple of films. Uh, one which I think we have brought up here is uh, Al Franken. Oh, Al Franken, yes. Uh, I think it's called Being God. <laughs> well, if there is a God, I would imagine he would look a lot like Al Franken. If there was a God, he purports that God would be pissed off at the conservatives <laughs> and the evangelicals. Oh, okay. Well, for twisting the truth. Bad news for them then. You don't want to get God pissed off. <laughs> I actually thought it was a very good movie. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny, actually. All right. And again, that's a preview screen, so it's probably going to be out in the theaters at some point. Right. And there's also a number of former films. I think my favorite was probably The uh, the Princess Raccoon. The Princess Raccoon, okay. Uh-huh. It uh, stars Zhang Ziyi, the girl from Crossing Tiger and Dragon right. and Memoirs of Geisha. Right. But in this movie, it's actually quite interesting. She speaks Mandarin while everyone else speaks Japanese, and it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> uh-huh. But to sum it up, I would say it's like Mulan Rouge on steroids done in Kabuki. Kabuki Rouge. Yeah, it's a musical, you know, a love story. A lot of the action doesn't make sense, but it's basically characters expressing their emotions of love. <laughs> All right, well, it is what makes the world go round. Uh-huh. And there was also The Sun, which is a documentary about Japan's Emperor Hirohito when he met with Douglas MacArthur, and it was done by the same director that did Russian Ark. That was an impressive piece of filmmaking, Russian Ark. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the most entertaining. Right, one continuous shot, right? So, right. But this one was uh, similar or no? No, it was actually like the meaning of the cultures mm-hmm. at the time, and in a sense, it, you know, we never knew what the meanings were like, but mm-hmm. it's speculative that there was a lot of apprehension between these two men, mm-hmm. and certainly it shows that the situation was very awkward and uncomfortable for them but right. it also shows that they were also very uh, curious about each other's cultures so right. that was very interesting I thought yeah would you recommend I guess people that go to the uh, San Francisco Film Festival next year if they are in the Bay Area next year they certainly should there was a very very international uh, repertoire there uh-huh. and uh, you know unfortunately I didn't have time to see it, a lot of it but based on what I've heard it's probably one of the best ones and there was actually one film that was quite controversial as a documentary about people committing suicide off the Golden Gate Bridge uh, I don't think that would be pleasant to watch but it was played to a packed audience well as long as it's not a how-to manual I guess that's probably <laughs> right. a good idea but no you know the idea is like how much should we spend to put up a barrier so people can't jump over it's like something on the order of 20 or 40 million dollars 20 or 40 million dollars and how many people die every year <laughs> something like 40 or 50 40 or 50. Yeah. Okay, so it's per, you're, so you're valuing each person as like five, worth half a million? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It depends what kind of person. <laughs> right. Well, I think the Berkeley College of Engineering had actually several prototypes of what these barriers might look like. All right. <laughs> so very cool. That, I guess, uh, rounds up our look at San Francisco Film Festival all of a sudden. So. Uh-huh. And Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. Well, birefringence occurs when light is split into two rays because there are multiple refractive indexes in a material, and that's what birefringence is. Yeah, man, that birefringence is awesome, man. Not the school is ganja bob here with this week's question of the week. You got some other drugs, man. It's called the quinine. What's the quinine good for? If you know the answer, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, man, but you might feel a little less anemic. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Z. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>